Former President Trump pleads not guilty to more than 30 federal charges that he illegally kept classified documents. It's Wednesday, June 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, hours after Trump's court appearance, he rallied with supporters claiming he is the victim. It's a political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or a communist nation. Also this hour, the push by some NATO members to create a path for Ukraine to join the alliance. This is not only about the fate of the Ukraine or Ukrainian nation, but also about our security. Uh, Russia is trying to destroy NATO. Plus, conservationists in Amherst push against large solar farms. It just seems really odd to me to cut down a forest to put up a solar facility. Forecast says some sun, maybe some rain today. Highs in the 70s. It's 701. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. After former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to federal charges in Miami yesterday, he flew to Bedminster, New Jersey. That's home to his summer residence and golf course. Harrison Malkin reports Trump spoke defiantly about the charges to supporters at a campaign rally. Trump spoke to a crowd of supporters and donors hours after being arraigned. Among them was Adam W.A. Solis, co-chair of the New York Young Republicans Hispanic Caucus. I understand his candor. I understand his pride. Um, I myself hold the same pride of being a New Yorker. Solis and other supporters echoed Trump's rhetoric about this being a political lynching. But the former president faces 37 federal felony charges related to the mishandling of classified documents. Trump fought back on Tuesday night, calling the DOJ the Department of Injustice. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin in Bedminster, New Jersey. A federal judge is allowing writer E. Jean Carroll to seek another $10 million in damages against Trump. Last month, the jury found Trump liable as sexual abuse and defamation against Carroll, but did not sustain her claim that Trump raped her. Carroll's pending suit alleges Trump continued to disparage her. A federal judge has temporarily blocked Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of video game giant Activision Blizzard. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, federal regulators have argued the deal would give Microsoft too much power in the gaming industry. Microsoft's bid to take over Activision Blizzard would be the biggest merger in video game history. But now a federal judge has granted the Federal Trade Commission's request to temporarily block it. Microsoft makes the Xbox console, and Activision Blizzard makes popular games like Call of Duty. Regulators fear Microsoft could give preference to its own games over rival consoles Sony and Nintendo. The action against Microsoft is the latest instance of the Biden administration's backlash against big tech after several previous administrations were lax in the face of mergers in tech. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro is scheduled to give a briefing today on the next steps to deal with the deadly collapse of a key highway overpass. Part of an Interstate 95 overpass in Philadelphia buckled Sunday morning after a fuel truck caught fire underneath it. Human remains have been found in the rubble. Truckers say the closure of the major East Coast highway could affect the U.S. economy. Trucker Joseph Fitzpatrick says that detours around the freeway collapse are expensive. Every week this goes on, and every month, this is going to cost me over $1,500 a month extra, just on tolls. Meanwhile, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the federal government is promising to help with highway repairs. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The total shutdown of the Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown happens in three weeks, and already state transportation officials are warning about potential traffic nightmares. The tunnel will close on July 5th for a reconstruction project, and it stays closed until August 31st. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says detours will be in place for drivers, but it could add at least an hour or more to some commutes. The more people avoid traveling through that area, the better. We really want to encourage people to ditch the drive and remote. The MBTA Blue Line and East Boston Ferry will both be free during the shutdown. Burlington residents are urging their school committee to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. That's after some students at the town's middle school held a counter-protest during an LGBTQ pride celebration. The school committee met last night for the first time since that incident, and school officials said the district is committed to tolerance and inclusivity. Some parents tell the Boston Globe the district needs to fill a vacant DEI director role. In Western Mass yesterday, a few dozen people held a protest against Boston-based General Electric. They're opposed to the EPA's cleanup plan for the Housatonic River, which was contaminated with PCBs by GE decades ago. Nancy Cohen reports. Protesters walked across the river to the Woods Pond Dam, where Stockbridge resident Denny Alsup joined them carrying a canoe. He had paddled upstream towards the dam, which is owned by General Electric. Alsup is concerned about the condition of the dam and a canal next to it that he says should be an escape valve in a flood, but neither water nor his canoe could get through it. It's plugged, all filled with masonry. In case of a flood, that's going to be a disaster. Especially, he says, because PCBs would be in the floodwaters. GE says the clogged canal is not part of the dam, and the company has an EPA-approved plan to monitor the dam. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Researchers with the New England Aquarium say they spotted four orcas swimming off Nantucket over the weekend. Orcas are commonly referred to as killer whales, and sightings are extremely rare in New England waters. Scientist Orla O'Brien says this is the first time that the aerial survey team has ever spotted orcas, and it's not clear why they're here. If for some reason we started to see more and more killer whales, then maybe we would be able to say something about why they were coming here or, you know, what's bringing them here. But for right now, this is just an amazing story and a fun day. O'Brien says orca experts believe the whales were an adult male and female alongside two youngsters. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. In sports, Red Sox lost to the Colorado Rockies 7-6 in 10 innings at Fenway last night. The teams will wrap up their three-game series tonight. And our weather forecast, a dense fog advisory still posted for eastern Massachusetts for another two hours or so. After that, should be partly sunny today, maybe a few scattered showers this afternoon. Highs in the 70s today. Showers and thunderstorms overnight. Lows near 60 tonight and tomorrow, partly sunny temperatures in the 70s.
Sundays, 62 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The spectacle in a Miami courtroom this week leaves Republicans with a choice. It's to support or critique their party leader who's now been indicted. Former President Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 counts involving his refusal to return classified documents. His presidential rivals are responding in different ways. Mike Pence told The Wall Street Journal he read the indictment and can't defend what's alleged, though Trump deserves his day in court. Court. Vivek Ramaswamy promised to pardon Trump if elected. Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis suggested there's a double standard for conservatives. And then there are Republicans in Congress who face their own elections in 2024. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is hearing that some support Trump because their base voters do. Hey there, Deirdre. Good morning. What is the case that Republican lawmakers are making? Some GOP lawmakers I talked to yesterday in the Capitol, they point out that President Biden had classified documents in his possession, and he hasn't been indicted. But we should note there is a major difference in that President Biden is also being investigated by a special counsel, but he's returned documents and has been cooperating. Former President Trump denied he had some documents, didn't hand over documents once he received a subpoena, and then his own legal team found some classified materials And then the former president encouraged his lawyers to get rid of some of those. Yeah. uh, When you talk about a double standard, you're effectively talking about some other case other than Trump's case. Do you hear Republicans talking about the specific charges against Trump? No, most lawmakers are really avoiding the substance of the indictment and really sticking with their argument that this is really all political. A lot of Republicans stress that they hear from constituents back home. Republican voters are very supportive of former President Trump. GOP aides I've talked to also stress that House members, especially who are up for re-election every two years, don't want to get crosswise with Trump and potentially face their own primary challenge. And some lawmakers say that with Trump on the ticket as the nominee, he could help them keep control of the House in 2024. Here's the GOP chairman of the House Republican Campaign Committee, Richard Hudson. I think he would help because he would turn out voters that normally wouldn't turn out. Well, that's pretty frank. Uh, You're talking about the House here. Uh, Some senators also face re-election in 2024, although the way the elections work, some do not face re-election next year. What do you hear from the senators? Senate Republicans are split. A lot echo the same arguments as House Republicans, especially like Texas Senator Ted Cruz. No president in the history of our country has been prosecuted by his successor. This is something banana republics do. And it is profoundly harmful to the rule of law. But there are some Senate Republicans I talked to yesterday who are growing more publicly comfortable talking about the need to look for an alternative in the presidential race. South Dakota Republican Senator Mike Rounds has endorsed his colleague Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina's presidential campaign, and Rounds says it's a problem for Republicans to have the front runner of their party facing two indictments. We'll allow the legal process to work its way through. In the meantime, we've got other candidates who can look forward. I guess when he says the legal process, this is, of course, before the justice system. So does Congress have any role other than giving opinions? The House Republicans want to be part of this going forward. Some are talking about using the upcoming debate on federal spending bills to defund special counsel Jack Smith's investigation 
or defund the FBI. House Republicans are also ramping up their oversight investigations of the Biden administration and the Biden family. I talked to House Oversight Chairman Jim Comer, who's planning to send two more subpoenas to FBI Director Chris Wray for documents in his investigation of the president and his family. Comer says whistleblowers who his committee has talked to have evidence of corruption of Biden and his son Hunter, but he hasn't provided any evidence of those claims yet. Okay. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. While lawmakers assess their political strategies, Trump's legal team will be settling on legal strategies to defend the former president in court. Sarah Krisoff used to be a federal prosecutor. She's now a defense attorney, and she's with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So knowing what we know from the indictment, if you were trying, if you were defending in this case, what would be the thing you'd seize on to try and persuade a jury? So there's a few things, really. Um, I, I think the defense team here really needs to look at the application of the crime fraud exception mm-hmm. to Evan Cor- Evan Corcoran. That's a big part of this case here. Um, and it's a significant thing that the Department of Justice um, invoke that exception. And so I think if they can challenge that ruling, you know, they may be able to knock out some of this case. It, it will be an uphill road, but they can certainly, I think that is one of the more promising areas to defend this case. Okay. So the crime fraud exception, obviously a lot of the indictment, the stronger evidence is coming from Trump's own lawyer's notes, M. Evan Corcoran. And in the indictment, it says he pressured Corcoran to thwart investigators, even suggested lying to them. So you're saying looking at this, maybe keeping it out of court? That's right. I think they can sort of challenge, they can look at challenging that underlying ruling by the judge allowing that um, uh, evidence to be used here. And I think, frankly, that argument has some sort of public appeal as well. I mean, it matches the, the rhetoric we're hearing from Trump's camp about, you know, uh, selective prosecution and, and the inappropriateness of this type of prosecution. So I, I think it has some appeal to protect those communications with uh, Trump's lawyer, although there there is set forth in the law, a very clear exception to allow for those types of materials um, in, in certain instances to be utilized in an investigation. But I, I think it has both legal and uh, rhetorical appeal, frankly. How difficult is this case going to be to be a defense attorney? And I mean, Donald Trump's a former president. He dominates the news. He's, for many people, a love him or hate him type of person. Is it possible to find an impartial jury in such a polarizing case? I, I do think it's possible. You know, we do have a history of, of putting people on trial who are notorious. This is not the first time it has happened. This might be the, the most notorious defendant, but not the first. And so I think with the proper questioning of the jury, it's going to take a lot of work to make sure that the jurors are folks that are have an open mind that they're going to evaluate the case based on the evidence before them and not anything they've heard before from the press from their friends but i think it is possible to seat a jury that can do that now trump was represented in court yesterday by christopher keys and todd blanche after two other attorneys quit the case this week there were reports of him scrambling to find a florida lawyer before his appearance is this kind of defense lawyer shuffle common you know, well, Trump himself has a long history of moving through lawyers and, and discarding lawyers. That Getting a team together to represent him here, I, I think, is going to be a, 
a challenge. Um, he needs to get folks who are you know, experienced in the espionage cases, experienced um, in public corruption cases, and, and also um, familiar with the court in the Southern District of Florida. So he, he and, you know, his, his field is somewhat limited at this point um, because he's, he's already utilized a lot of lawyers, and, and frankly, there's a lot of lawyers who probably aren't interested in taking the case. Sarah Krisoff is a defense attorney and former a federal prosecutor. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you for having me. For Crystal Galloway of North Carolina, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour was major. It would be a chance for me to reconnect with some of my friends that live across the country and are Swift fans. It was really exciting to me. Galloway was determined to go and sing along with thousands of other Swifties to her favorite song. Number one, I was most excited for Cruel Summer from Lover. It's an absolute summer bop with one of the best bridges of all time, and I could not wait to be screaming in a stadium. It's a cruel summer. I love that you know so much Taylor Swift. Hey, I, it's on the Girls. radio in my car. For my kids and she's good she's good anyway you love it steve I, it's not your kids I, Don't it's, I, she's good anyway this is a story about concert goers like galloway who had all this anticipation for the concert but you ask her now what she enjoyed most and she'll tell you that there are some things she cannot recall when i looked over the set list there were some songs like wildest dreams is one of my favorites from 1989 i could not place a memory to that no matter how hard I tried. And it was bizarre. Turns out a lot of concert goers have a hard time recalling what they saw or heard, like Cheney Singleton, who went to see SZA in Virginia. Kill Bill, uh, that's another one that I know. Singleton says she doesn't even recognize videos from that concert on her own phone. Me and my friend both were just like jaws dropped, like zoning out. <laughs> I have videos from when she first came on stage, but I don't even remember like recording those videos. So how could fans forget such big moments? We asked Robert Kraft. He's a professor of cognitive psychology at Otterbein University. I think afterwards they're experiencing normal memory. I know that it's been called post-concert amnesia, and I think that has to do with our expectations of memory being too high and maybe not knowing exactly how memory works. Kraft says concert goers should not be discouraged if they can't recall everything because they're not supposed to. Not remembering is actually a tribute to being in the moment and fully appreciating the music. Galloway and Singleton say they do have great concert memories, even if there is some uh, blank space. But I've got a blank space, baby, and I'll write your name. Whether it's going to be forever or go down in flames, this is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, ahead of NATO's upcoming summit, European lawmakers want the alliance to give Ukraine a path to membership. It's 20 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Fort Point Arts Community, hosting an exhibit at Atlantic Wharf Gallery, celebrating the 40th anniversary of artists living and working together in a converted brick and beam warehouse at 249A Street. Now through August 11th, fortpointarts.org. The government's poor implementation of laws it's already passed, a.k.a. red tape. We've been trying to fix this problem with more money for technology and government, more oversight, and more rules. And the evidence shows that's not working. Jennifer Palka says we can slash that red tape, but only if government commits to upgrading its technology and its working culture. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, partly sunny today, scattered showers this afternoon, highs in the 70s. It's 62 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm A. Martinez. I have always had a thing for the superhero The Flash. He's not a muscle-bound, take-charge alpha male like Superman or Batman. The Flash is all about speed and self-deprecating wit wrapped in a slight and slender frame. Now, that description has fit me to a T since I was a tot. I could never trade punches with bullies, so I'd run away instead. For decades, I've read Flash comic books, I've watched Flash TV series, I've collected hundreds of Flash figures and memorabilia, which I keep on display in my office at NPR West. All this to say that I've been waiting around, oh, say, 45 years for a standalone Flash movie. Well, the wait is over. Oh my God! Flash! Hi. Hi. I love you! Thank you. Passing you into Mr. Wayne. No, please don't. Um, I need you here now, Barry. The director of The Flash is Andy Muschietti, and his sister Barbara is one of the producers. They were born in Argentina, and I had some questions for them. When Barry Allen's mom, Nora, first shows up, she's singing in the kitchen in Spanish. When she speaks to Barry and his dad, Henry, in English, she has an accent. I love you, Mikey. I love you more. I loved you first. (laughs) So I got to know, because it hit me like a bolt of lightning, pardon the pun, is the Flash Latinx? Does the Flash have Latin American ancestry, Andy? 
Well, he has a Latin mother, so you draw your own conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like him to. I mean, we're Latinos and we bring with us what we are. We're incredibly proud Latinos. We're incredibly happy that we went to the studio and we, we told them who we wanted. And that's who we have in, in the movie. Maribel, Sasha, we have Ruben Blades, we have Rosalia, you know, we have Natalia Furcade uh, singing a Chadila Vargas song. It may be, you know, details, but we're definitely all over the movie. Oh, I noticed everyone. I think everyone's going to notice for sure. Well, and hopefully it makes it better. Yeah. Now, there have been lots of Batman movies, lots of Superman movies, a couple of Wonder Woman movies, even an Aquaman movie. Andy, this is the first Flash film, the first standalone Flash film. So tell us who is the Flash? How does he fit into what we've seen from DC in the last few years? Well, I think it's a character that deserved a standalone movie, you know, not only because of what the character means in the comic book world, but also the portrayal of Barry Allen that Ezra did in previous movies like Justice League and Batman or Superman a little bit. I think we all deserve not only a standalone movie about the character, but a movie where the character is played by Ezra Miller. And that, that's one of the things that got me very excited. The star of The Flash is Ezra Miller. In the past year and a half, Miller has been fined for disorderly conduct and pled guilty to trespassing, while also being accused of assault, burglary, and grooming a minor. I asked Andy what it was like to make the movie while Miller was going through those controversies. Well, obviously, we take this these issues very seriously. We do have a lot of empathy for people who need help. And uh, Ezra is going through treatment right now and he's taking the necessary steps to recovery. And we support him in that. We support them in that sense. But as filmmakers, you keep you keep working. Um, you, you have a wonderful movie in your hands and you get it done. You keep your head down and you, you get the movie, the movie done. There's a few comic book stores in my neighborhood that I go to regularly just to see what new Flash toys are there for me to buy. But there are people there that I talk to, people that work there, people that go there. And some of them are saying that they will not see this movie. They will not see the Flash movie because Ezra Miller is in the movie. What would you say to fans who may choose not to watch the movie because Ezra Miller is in it? Look, every, every, everybody has right to have their opinion and their and the sensibility and stuff. I can't speak to them. I don't, I don't want to convince them otherwise. Um, I can't say that we are very proud of this movie. We're, we're very happy with, with Ezra's work in it. And we support him in his, in his recovery in the steps that he's basically following to complete his treatment. I will also add that mental health is an issue for everybody. And, um, I would advocate empathy. Tell us then, who is the Ezra Miller that you two know that we don't? I think he's a, he's a person with a, with a huge heart. Since the moment that we, we met them, we knew that, that they, they were a very special person with a, a lot of feelings and, and a lot of heart. And they are dedicated to activism and help other people. And apart from that, an extraordinary, extraordinary actor, just, just incredibly talented. And disciplined, um, mm -hmm. passionate. We shot with him for 138 days. We 
prepped with them for six months nonstop, and they were truly incredible. Now, Andy, by the time you signed on to direct The Flash, that was July 2019, there had been production delays, at least three directors left the project, story and script changes. It seemed like a mess. I live a mile away from Warner Brothers. I know people that work on the lot. We see each other at the grocery store. We would talk all the time. What about The Flash got you to sign on to this? It wasn't an issue for us. I just looked at this movie as an opportunity to make something exciting for the audience and we just jumped on it and as latinos we're incredibly stubborn we will bite a bone <laughs> and and not let it go especially if, you know if we love it we do everything we can to make great movies the rest you know can't exist we just look forward and try to tell a beautiful story Andy Muschietti directed The Flash. Barbara Muschietti is one of the producers. The Flash comes out June 16th. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much, you. Hey. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top local stories are coming up in just a moment. And at 7.50 on Morning Edition, why some conservationists in Amherst are pushing against large solar farms. Coming to City Space next Wednesday, authors Matthew Desmond and Andre Deboose III will discuss their new books that focus on poverty in America. You can get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The time is 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. And Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to a 37-count indictment over his handling of classified documents after leaving the White House. Trump appeared in a federal court in Florida yesterday for his arraignment. Last night in New Jersey, Trump repeated his claim that he's being prosecuted for political reasons. NPR's Deidre Walsh says many Republicans on Capitol Hill seem to agree. Most lawmakers are really avoiding the substance of the indictment and really sticking with their argument that this is really all political. The Greek Coast Guard says at least 59 people have died after a fishing boat capsized off southern Greece. The boat was carrying dozens of migrants. Some survivors are being treated for hypothermia. The U.N. Refugee Agency says more than 108 million people around the world were displaced from their homes last year by war and persecution. That number is a record. Most were fleeing Russia's war in Ukraine. Shabia Mantu is with the UNHCR. Some of the world's least resourced countries are actually hosting the large majority of the world's refugees. So 76% of the world's refugees are hosted in these low and middle income countries. They're not heading on mass to the west or to the global north. But what it really points to is a picture of the need for global solidarity and more responsibility sharing with these states. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts could soon see an even greater exodus of health care workers because of burnout from the pandemic. That's according to new research from the Boston University School of Medicine. It found nearly 40 percent of health care workers in the state are planning to leave the industry within five years. The study's leader, Dr. Rebecca Perkins, says the pandemic continues to take a toll. And it was very clear that vaccines were very helpful, but were not going to eliminate COVID the way they, you know, eliminate measles and smallpox. And that this was going to be an ongoing thing. The level of exhaustion and burnout was higher. Perkins says solutions might include increasing staffing levels, boosting salaries, and making schedules more flexible. The head of a Massachusetts electrical company has pleaded guilty to charges of defrauding the operator of the MBTA commuter rail. John Rafferty admitted to defrauding Keolis Commuter Services. Prosecutors say he used false invoices to scam Keolis out of more than $4 million. Rafferty could face up to five years in prison. Award-winning R&B group En Vogue will headline this year's Boston Pops 4th of July concert on the Esplanade. Pops conductor Keith Lockhart says the concert will have the usual orchestral favorites, but he says the music will include some modern classics as well. We're thrilled to have gotten En Vogue to perform with us. They are really going to bring the party. I, I love their songs uh, myself, even though I'm, I was a little old for when they really hit. But For Your Mind, for instance, is a great song. The Boston Pops will also share the hat shell stage with country duo Low Cash and Broadway performer Mandy Gonzalez. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In sports, another night at Fenway, another 10-inning game, and another loss for Boston. The Red Sox fell to the Colorado Rockies last night 7-6. to The Sox will try to avoid a series sweep tonight. Our weather forecast, partly sunny skies today, maybe scattered showers this afternoon. Temperatures in the 70s today. Showers and thunderstorms tonight with lows around 60 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow. There could be some scattered showers here and there in some spots. Temperatures in the 70s. And for Friday, a mix of sun and clouds, a few scattered showers again, and highs in the 70s. It's 62 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station, And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. The Biden administration says that NATO members will be united in their support for Ukraine when the alliance holds a summit next month. But some members want the Western allies to do more than that and offer Ukraine a real pathway to join NATO. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. 
Lithuanian lawmaker and former ambassador to the U.S. Shigimantis Pavilionis says the NATO summit in his country will be a big test. He was at the 2008 summit in Bucharest when NATO agreed that both Ukraine and Georgia would become members, but the alliance refused to give either country a clear pathway to membership so as not to provoke Russia. Actually, non-enlargement of NATO provoked war in Georgia, in Ukraine, because we created gray zones. We signal to Russia and Bucharest that we have no clue what to do in Ukraine and Georgia. Though those nations are fighting and dying for our values, you know, those countries are for grabs. Pavilionis is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Lithuania's parliament. He came to Washington along with his counterparts from Denmark, Poland, and Estonia, saying the alliance needs to tell Russia's Vladimir Putin that there will be no more gray zones in Europe. And the sooner we expect Press it clearly in Vilnius. The sooner the Russians get this collective message of unity, this will be the end of war. The Biden administration has just announced another $325 million in security assistance to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told reporters in Washington that he believes the support is paying off on the battlefield as Ukraine carries out a counteroffensive against Russia's occupying forces. And Ukrainians are making progress, uh, uh, making advances. Uh, it's still early days, uh, but what we do know is that the more land Ukrainians are able to liberate, um, the stronger hand they will have at the negotiating table. And also the more likely it will be that President Putin at some stage will understand that he will never win this war. In public, neither he nor President Biden addressed the issue of NATO membership for Ukraine, and the lawmakers who are visiting from Europe understand that this is a long-term proposition. But Estonia's Marko Mikkelsen says he believes that giving Ukraine a clear pathway to join is the only way to restore stability in Europe. This is the uh, biggest geopolitical battle in, uh, in the world since the end of World War II, and we have to understand that this is not only about the fate of uh, Ukraine or Ukrainian nation, but also about our security architecture, transatlantic, uh, Euro-Atlantic uh, security uh, architecture. Uh, Russia is trying to destroy NATO. The chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Denmark's parliament, Michael Ostrop Jensen, is hoping that Americans can rally behind this, despite the divided politics in Washington. U.S. has been uh, a world leader for so many years, and if we still want to uphold that world order that is not China, it's not Russia that decides, but it's the free world, uh, then we need leadership right now. And that's, I think, one of the messages that we'll try to convey to our American friends. He says he was glad that the Biden administration recently agreed to allow countries like Denmark to provide Ukraine with F-16s, but he adds it took too long and it was too late to help with Ukraine's counteroffensive. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Hey, the Rocky Mountains received a lot of snow last winter, and that melting snow has filled the streams that flow into the Colorado River. It is such a change that the surrounding states have paused their negotiations over who gets how much water from a river that has been stressed and is still. Alex Hager with member station KUNC reports from the Riverside. Ken Brenner is sitting on the yellow rubber edge of a huge inflatable raft as the boat splashes through the Yampa River. We're flying along. There's like, no way in the world you could run this fast along the side of the river. 
The Yampa cuts through wide sagebrush plains and dramatic red rock canyons in northern Colorado. And this year, it is full. Water is the highest it's been in more than a decade. Well, it's like a roller coaster, only there's no rail. It's You're all at the mercy of the water and your helmsman. Brenner grew up on a ranch near the river and now has a role in state water policy. He's one of 30 people on an educational trip down the river where snowmelt is rushing downstream. That leaves a bumpy ride of big rapids, even for an experienced guide like Alyssa Schaefer. Every time we come around the corner, we don't know what to expect. Are we going to see big holes that we have to avoid? Or is camp going to be harder to catch? Is there going to be an eddy there? All kinds of unexpected amazing stuff happening. This year has been an exceptionally wet one across the Southwest. Extraordinary snow in the Rocky Mountains is rushing through the Yampa. Matt Rice with the conservation group American Rivers is sitting on its banks. We are quite literally being saved by the Yampa Basin right now. The Yampa flows into the Colorado River on its way to Lake Powell, which is projected to climb almost 70 feet this year when every molecule of water is important, right? The Yampa is delivering on such a monster scale right now. Lindsay Marlowe runs the conservation group Friends of the Yampa and says a wet year means more than just refilling reservoirs. When we talk about the greater Colorado system, we really focus on it as like a commodity, like we're buying and trading, and, and we seem to forget the people and the habitats and the animals and the fish along the way. And a lot of that flora and fauna is thriving this year. Underwater, endangered native fish are seeing conditions primed for reproduction. And all that water is moving around sediment, creating and maintaining better habitats for them in the future. Marlowe says it's facts like those that get lost in big conversations about water management. We don't know, by changing things and controlling things, how much that affects the greater whole. And when people don't feel the effects, they tend to ignore them. As the region's water managers make decisions about that big picture, they're facing the reality that one wet winter will not save the Colorado River. Even after a big new agreement to keep more water in reservoirs for the next three years, it'll take more than temporary conservation to support rivers around the West. Audrey Turner, also on this trip, is enjoying a sunny stretch of flat water, a break from the rapids. She's with the Colorado River District, a water policy agency. It's important for us to be grateful and appreciate what uh, Mother Nature gave us and, and recognize that it might not be here again for an unknown period of time. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager on the Yampa River. Bringing you a steady flow of information. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Federal Reserve Policy Meeting today with many economists expecting the Fed to leave interest rates unchanged. 
In our forecast, partly sunny skies today. We could see a shower or two in some spots this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the 70s. Tonight, showers, thunderstorms, lows near 60. Partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 70s. And for Friday, a mix of sun and clouds, a few scattered showers, and temperatures in the 70s. 62 degrees right now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. And Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. In business news, for the first time in its history, the group Associated Industries of Massachusetts will be led by a woman. The business group's board uh, advisory board unanimously approved Brooke Thompson to take over as its new president and CEO at the end of this year. Thompson previously served as executive vice president. She'll take over for John Regan, who led the organization since 2019. Framingham-based Sincere Corporation is acquiring the internet company Time Hop. Time Hop allows users to create a personal archive of past social media posts. The financial terms of the deal were not disclosed. And Boston-based wireless internet provider Starry expects to emerge from bankruptcy under new ownership. The company entered bankruptcy in 2022 following a merger. The Boston Globe reports that Starry's lenders will now own the company, and Starry says its customers will not be affected by the change. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. As we head toward Father's Day on Sunday, we're hearing the voices of fathers from all sorts of backgrounds. Today, it's an army dad whose combat service kept him far from home for long spells and away from his children. And while we were taking fire, I remember thinking, please, God, don't, you know, <laughs> sorry, don't let me get shot in the back. You know, that's really what really went through my mind at that time was, you know, my kids, you know. My name is Dwayne Jolly. I'm a retired Sergeant Major from Psychological Operations. I deployed to Afghanistan for three years and I spent one year in Iraq and about two years in Qatar. His wife, Patrice, is still active duty Army. They have three children, a 26-year-old daughter, a 21-year-old son, and a 12-year-old daughter. We reach this Army dad on a rare romantic getaway with his wife in Hawaii. Oftentimes, just, you know, as a married couple, we don't get a chance to get away for ourselves. So we're down here in uh, Kauai, and uh, I'm sitting on the porch looking at the ocean and listening to the waves crashing in. 
I'd say the, my two oldest kids really caught the worst of it as far as missing out on things. One of the <laughs> worst parts was uh, my oldest daughter at the time. When I left, she was, I think she was nine, and so she was still a little girl, you know, pigtails and such. And then uh, by the time I came back, she had hit puberty, and that was a bit rough, you know, to leave your little girl and come back and, you know, she's becoming a young woman. I feel like I missed that transition period, you know what I mean? There's definitely a difference in the attention that my youngest gets. And uh, I will say that when I would leave, it certainly seemed to affect my daughter more than it affected my son. And you could see uh, a correlation in my daughter's behavior or even in her grades. You could spot when her dad was gone. You know, her grades would dip down. And then when I came home, you know, her grades would come back up, her behavior would come back up. and. And then, yeah, with my son, he never really finished any kind of sport. So, for instance, I would start soccer with him, but then I'd deploy and he'd quit. And then, you know, I'd come back and we'd start baseball, and, but then I'd deploy and he'd quit. I would say that my son's the only one who's even made the comment that, you know, he's not sure about the military because we were gone so much and that he doesn't want that for his family. You know, my older ones know now, of course, what I did, but even, you know, my 12-year-old, luckily for her, she's, you know, had her dad at home more. Now that I'm retired, she doesn't have to worry about me going to combat anymore. I've promised her I'll never miss another one of her birthdays. You know, I, I will always be home no matter what I'm doing for her birthday. These sacrifices isn't just what the soldier or sailor marine makes or airmen it's also the family their daddy their mommy is not there for a year you know they're sacrificing their relationship with their parent they're sacrificing their time not just the soldier not just the sailor but the kids as well even though it does take a toll on the family i think it's important to serve your country serving your country is a noble effort and i think that the sacrifices that we made were worth it that's father of three, retired Army Sergeant Major Dwayne Jolly. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this morning. Coming up on Morning Edition, law enforcement is increasingly using artificial intelligence to investigate crimes. Some civil rights advocates say they want some limits on that technology. It's 10 minutes before 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com And BioNova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Two of California's largest home insurers have said they won't sell new policies there. And some homeowners who had already lost their insurance are struggling to find a replacement. They basically told us that we were dropped because of the risk of wildfires. And when we went to go reinsure, no other insurers are apparently insuring this zip code anymore. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning on WBUR. Former President Trump is back on the campaign trail after pleading not guilty to charges that he mishandled classified documents. Some members of NATO are pressuring President Biden to fast-track a pathway for Ukraine to join the alliance. And at least 59 people have died. Dozens are feared missing after a boat carrying migrants capsized off the coast of Greece. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. Our forecast calling for partly sunny skies today. A few showers in spots this afternoon. Temperatures in the 70s. Rain and thunderstorms tonight. Lows near 60 and partly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 70s. 62 degrees right now in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Reigning in climate change requires building a lot more renewable energy infrastructure. But across the country, there's much opposition to those projects. And often that pushback comes from local environmentalists. NPR's Julia Simon reports. Amherst, not Amherst, Massachusetts, is a town of highly educated people who speak their mind. There's a saying in Amherst that only the H is silent, meaning that uh, people like to voice their opinions. Dwayne Bregger is with UMass Amherst. He says the town pretty much agrees climate change is here. But as for where to put larger solar projects that would cut emissions, that's where opinions split. On one side are people like Janet McGowan. It just seems really odd to me to cut down a forest to put up a solar facility. McGowan, a lawyer and mediator, says she's not anti-solar, but she worries about losing the town's forests and farmland to new solar projects. My concern is if you build a solar array on a farm, that's sort of taken out of production. Then there's her neighbor down the road, Stephen Roof. The evidence is clear and it has been for decades. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. Roof's an environmental science professor at Hampshire College who takes students to the Arctic to see the effects of global warming. He worries fears about conserving farms and forests could lead Amherst to enact restrictive regulations that limit the ability to build solar and reduce emissions. If we don't turn to renewable energy and stop burning fossil fuels in 10 or 15 years, our our ecosystems are going to be ravaged from climate change. Disagreements over solar between environmentalists aren't unique to Amherst. A new report from Columbia University identified more than a dozen solar projects that faced opposition from environmentalists. In Amherst, conservation concerns have already delayed solar. The town's sustainability director, Stephanie Ciccarello, recalls a proposed solar array on a landfill. A pair of nesting grasshopper sparrows were identified at the South Landfill location. Because the birds are endangered, the town ultimately put the solar array on another landfill. It took seven years. Now, as the town writes regulations for where to locate solar, many, like McGowan, are pushing to keep solar primarily on the built environment, like school buildings and commercial rooftops. Like, why are we putting solar on farmland and not on, you know, Walmart and Target 
But while solar on rooftops will be part of the energy transition, larger solar projects on the ground, like community or utility-scale solar, can be a lot cheaper. Jesse Jenkins, an energy professor at Princeton University, says the U.S. will need a lot more renewable electricity as we replace things like coal and gas plants and as we turn to electric cars electric heat pumps. We can do that if we scale up both distributed and utility-scale solar, but we're not going to get there with rooftops alone. There are ways to settle conservation disputes over solar, according to a new report from The Nature Conservancy. Elevating solar over farmland to keep it in use, over pollinator-friendly plants for bees, engaging the community, a lot. But Michael Girard, environmental law professor at Columbia University, says we've run out of time to save everything we want to save. Had we listened to climate scientists decades ago, maybe we wouldn't be in this place. But society all around the world has delayed, and we are now at a point where we have to swallow hard, put some of these wind and solar facilities in imperfect places, unfortunately kill some birds, but there's no other way around it. Back in Amherst, Brigger says he hopes the new solar regulations will be careful, but not overly restrictive. The town hopes to have the regulations done by the end of the summer. Julia Simon, NPR News. As a kid growing up in Vermont, Bruce Lisman could spend days thumbing through the pages of old books. My family, uh, immediate family, were a bunch of readers. I mistakenly said to a friend, we're a bunch of bookies. And he said, you're kidding. <laughs> no, 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 not that, not that kind of bookie. <laughs> now, Layla mentioned old books. Mr. Lisman says his father was especially fond of American writing from the 1800s and earlier. He really believed the best uh, literature available had ended by the time the 20th century began. And Lisman took that to heart. As an adult, while working as an executive on Wall Street, he amassed rare treasures from what he describes as the dawn of American literature. It started with barely a trickle in the 18th century, but by the mid-19th century, Melville, Poe, Hawthorne, Stowe, and hundreds of others just emerged. Lisman acquired early editions of 18th century poems by Phyllis Wheatley, the first African-American writer ever published. He picked up a first edition of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And his most prized acquisition is an original galley. That's a proof copy from before publication, a kind of beta test. An original galley of Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 work, The Scarlet Letter. That's, of course, about a woman shamed for bearing a child out of wedlock. Lisbon says if you haven't read the book since high school, read it again. In Scarlet Letter, uh, they've ostracized a woman. And through her dignity and strength and inner strength, you know, who wins at the end of the book? Well, I think she does. Mm, now, Lisman, who ran as a Republican in Vermont's 2016 governor's race, believes the Scarlet Letter is relevant today, regardless of your politics. The notion of ostracizing another person for what they say or what they do within the realm of what's legal and acceptable, the value of quiet dignity in response to that. Lisman says now he's mostly done collecting foundational American fiction. And this week, he's putting it all up for auction. So grab your wallet. The Bruce M. Lisman Collection of Important American Literature is valued at between 3 and $5 million. He says the old writings bear important lessons for a modern-day audience. You know, we struggle sometimes with our history. 
we think we know who we are as people or, or as a country. And, you know, our history says otherwise sometimes. Christie's begins auctioning off Listman's collection on June 15th. Some other news now. Pro hockey has a new champion. For the first time, the Golden Knights are Stanley Cup champions. The Vegas Golden Knights won their first Stanley Cup in franchise history by defeating the Florida Panthers in five games. In the final, Mark Stone of the Knights had a hat trick, three goals, and the final score wasn't even close, 9-3. The Vegas Golden Knights are now the most dominant hockey team you can find in the desert. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Trump goes on the presidential campaign trail shortly after being arraigned on charges of mishandling classified documents. It's Wednesday, June 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the Fed's expected to pause interest rate hikes, but some say not for long. If we don't see more sustained improvement on the inflation front, they could be back to raising rates maybe as soon as their July meeting. Also this hour, some civil rights advocates call for guardrails on law enforcement's use of AI to solve crimes. Plus, Illinois passes a ban on banning books. We refuse to let a vitriolic strain of white nationalism coursing through our country determine whose histories are told. Forecast says partly sunny today, some scattered showers later, highs in the 70s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump is again pledging to fight federal charges of alleged mishandling of classified documents. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Trump rallied his supporters just hours after pleading not guilty to 37 federal criminal counts. Speaking at a fundraiser in New Jersey, Trump once again excoriated the Biden administration over the indictment without offering any evidence to support his claims. A corrupt sitting president had his top political opponent arrested on fake and fabricated charges of which he and numerous other presidents would be guilty. Tuesday's arraignment in Miami marked the latest set of legal troubles for Trump. Earlier this year, the former president was charged with 34 felonies in New York for allegedly falsifying business records in connection to hush money payments to an adult film star. Trump is also under investigation in Georgia for his alleged attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. The Federal Reserve is expected to leave interest rates unchanged when it wraps up a two-day policy meeting later today. 
NPR's Scott Horsley reports this move comes one day after the Labor Department reported a drop in inflation last month. The Fed has already raised interest rates 10 times in the last 15 months, so policymakers are expected to take a break this month and see how higher borrowing costs are affecting the broader economy. The central bank will likely leave the door open to additional rate hikes in the future, though, in case inflation remains stubbornly high. The consumer price index in May was up 4% from a year ago, the smallest annual increase in more than two years. That's still well above the Fed's target rate of 2%, though, and core inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, was even higher at 5.3%. Falling prices for eggs and gasoline last month were offset by the rising cost of rent and used cars. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas is in China today. He's meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. NPR's Emily Fang says it's part of China's effort to build up influence in the Middle East. China has indicated it wants to be a more active player in the Middle East. And earlier this year, China helped broker a truce between Saudi Arabia and Iran. China has indicated during Abbas's visit it hopes to help broker better relations between Israelis and Palestinians as well. Unlike the U.S., China officially recognizes the Palestinian state as a country, and Beijing's relationship with the Palestine Liberation Organization, which Abbas chairs, dates back to the Cold War. NPR's Emily Fang reporting. Officials in southern and eastern Ukraine say that Russia continues to fire missiles and shells at them. At least six people have been killed in the city of Odessa and in the Donetsk region. Several people have been injured. Yesterday, Russia struck a residential apartment building in the city of Krivi Ri, killing at least 11 people. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Healy says the problems facing the MBTA were decades in the making. The T is dealing with slowdowns, service problems, staff shortages, and safety issues. Agency leaders say they're working with federal transportation officials to address some of the issues. And after this week's minor derailment on the Green Line, Governor Healy said the poor condition of trolley tracks was to blame, which she says the T is working. To fix. The work of continuing to inspect, continuing to do those safety repairs, it's just ongoing and I can tell you it is a top priority for me and the team. Healy says reliable public transit is imperative to a healthy state economy. The state is now handling contract talks for the largest unions of the Boston Police and Fire Departments. The mediation comes after months of talks between the city and the unions failed to produce a new contract. The Boston Police Patrolmen's Association filed for arbitration in December. The Boston Globe reports that the state didn't decide to take over until last month. If mediation does not work, state labor officials will issue a contract that both sides will have to follow. The school committee in the western Massachusetts town of Ludlow is rejecting a controversial proposal on library books. Jill Kaufman reports the plan could have removed dozens of books from libraries and changed how future books were selected. Those in favor of the proposal said it would keep pornography out of the hands of schoolchildren. Opponents, including the ACLU, called it a form of censorship and anti-LGBTQ. Last night, three out of five Ludlow School Committee members were expected to vote no. I will entertain a motion. When it came time, Chairman Jeff Lang first asked if there was a motion to vote on the proposal. I make that motion. Joao Diaz, who had brought the proposal to the committee, made the motion. Is there a second? The motion to vote on the proposal wasn't seconded. It could be reintroduced, but Lang said 
The proposal had riled up the community enough, and it will likely not be heard again while he's chair of the committee. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Rhode Island will need more than $13 million to repair the landmark Newport Cliff Walk. Part of the walkway collapsed last year. The state's governor issued a disaster emergency to get some federal funds for repairs. He says the closure of the cliff walk is negatively impacting tourism and the economy in Newport. There's no timetable yet for the repairs. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In sports, Red Sox rallied back at Fenway last night to force extra innings, but they lost to the Colorado Rockies in 10. The final at Fenway was 7-6. to The teams wrap up their series tonight. In our weather forecast, partly sunny skies today, maybe a few showers. This afternoon, temperatures in the 70s. Tonight, rain, thunderstorms, lows near 60 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow. Temperatures in the 70s and for Friday, a mix of sun and clouds, maybe a few scattered showers Friday, and temperatures in the 70s, 63 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include stars with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Outlander premieres June 16th on Stars and the Stars app. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We are watching a volcano erupt in the Philippines. A river of lava is dripping down the side of Mount Mayon, and thousands are evacuating, as we'll hear in a moment. We're also watching an eruption of presidential candidates. Donald Trump, the indicted Republican frontrunner, has many challengers, and it's a more diverse field than in the past. We'll get to that after an update on interest rates. After raising rates at its last 10 meetings, the Federal Reserve is widely expected to do nothing this afternoon. But this could be just a rest stop in the Fed's campaign against inflation, not the end of the road. Yesterday, we learned the annual inflation rate fell to 4% in May. That's the lowest it's been in more than two years, but it's still well above the Fed's target of 2%. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Hey, 4% sounds better than 8%, which is where we were, but is that low enough? You know, inflation has come down a lot, but at 4%, it's still double the Fed's target. And what's more, some of the decline last month was the result of a drop in gasoline prices. And as we know, gas prices bounce up and down a lot. So there's no guarantee they're going to stay down. If you look at so-called core inflation, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, it's still 5.3%, which is only a little bit lower than the month before. That's why Greg McBride, who's chief financial analyst at Bankrate, thinks the Fed will leave the door open for additional rate hikes in the future if inflation remains stubbornly high. Progress is coming. It's just coming very, very slowly. And I think the report validates the Fed's stance that they're going to pause rate hikes in June. But if we don't see more substantive improvement and sustained improvement on the inflation front, they could be back to raising rates and that may be happening as soon as their July meeting. That's why forecasters are calling this a pause in rate hikes, not a full stop. Why would the Fed pause at all if they're still concerned about inflation? 
Well, rates have already gone up a lot. The Fed's benchmark rate, which was near zero just 15 months ago, is now over 5%. Mm. And the borrowing costs that consumers face are higher than that. Mortgage rates are up close to 7%. The average credit card is now charging over 20% interest. Wow. Now, if you pay your credit card bill in full every month, that doesn't much matter. But nearly half of all card users carry a balance. And we know those balances have been going up as people try to keep pace with these rising prices. The Fed's whole goal in raising interest rates is to make people think twice about spending money in hopes that tamping down demand will bring prices under control. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. So after 10 consecutive rate hikes, Fed policymakers are expected to take a break and hold rates steady for a while to assess how these higher borrowing costs are affecting the broader economy. You know, we assume that higher interest rates are bad. And for many people, of course, they are. But is there any upside? Yes, for people who are lucky enough to have some money in the bank, rising interest rates can be a good thing. Uh, some of the best-paying savings accounts are now finally keeping up with inflation. But bank rates' Greg McBride says you do have to shop around. Savers are seeing the best returns that they've seen in 15 years, uh, provided that they're looking in the right place. A lot of banks are still dragging their feet and have been pretty stingy on their payouts for savings accounts and CDs, but the top yielding accounts are over 5%, uh, and that's where you need to, to have your money. McBride suggests checking out internet banks, smaller community banks, and credit unions. Oftentimes, they offer the most competitive interest rates. All right. So if interest rate hikes are only paused, how much higher might they go? Well, we could get some insight on that this afternoon when policymakers issue their forecast. There's likely to be a range of opinion. Some Fed officials may think rates are high enough already, and they just have to be patient now. Others could see a need for at least one more rate hike this year in order to get prices under control. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. The 2024 presidential election is still 17 months away, but we've already got a crowded Republican field. And it's a somewhat racially and ethnically diverse group. Candidates like Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott are talking about their identities on the trail while also trying to appeal to a voting base that's mostly white. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. When former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley held a town hall with CNN recently, she talked about her family's experience as immigrants. It was difficult at first. You know, we were the only Indian family. We weren't white enough to be white. We weren't black enough to be black. They didn't know who we were, what we were, or why we were there. She also talked about how these experiences informed decisions she made as governor, including her decision to remove a Confederate flag from the state's capital. She then referred back to immigration in a different way when talking about policy. We will do a national E-Verify program. We will defund sanctuary cities once and for all. We will go back to remain in Mexico because guess what? Nobody wants to remain in Mexico. We will keep the provisions of Title 42. And instead of catch and release, we will go to catch and deport. Candidates of color in the Republican Party have to navigate their identity, but in a way that appeals to a voting base that is less diverse than the country as a whole. It's also a group that's increasingly being motivated by views that are anti-immigration and anti-diversity and inclusion, says Omar Wasso, a political science professor at UC Berkeley. The challenge for someone like Nikki Haley as a child of immigrants who has thrived and succeeded is that she has to both articulate an idea that says, you know, everyone can belong here in a party which has become increasingly vocal about the idea that this is a white Christian nation. 
Republican strategist Alex Conant worked with Senator Marco Rubio, also a child of immigrants, during his 2016 presidential run. He says a candidate's background and their story are very important. But they also need to recognize that presidential politics is also about the future. And so I think while they need to own their story, they also have to have a clear vision of where they want to lead the country. And I think ultimately that's what voters base their decision on. Is this person's agenda consistent with what my hopes and dreams are? But that doesn't mean that Republican candidates of color can completely avoid discussing race. Sarah Sadwani, a politics professor at Pomona College, says there was a time when Republican candidates could shy away from these issues, but that's not true anymore. And I think when we're in this time period in which a very mobilized faction of the MAGA Trump conservatives are espousing this type of white grievance politics, I think they're going to have questions for Republican candidates of color about how loyal they will actually be to the party platform that they want to see advanced. Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the U.S. Senate, has long tried to thread that needle as a lawmaker and now as a presidential candidate. During an appearance on The View recently, he said that he thought his story is a sign that the country has made progress when it comes to issues of race. He also dismissed any claims that his party's policies stand in the way of more progress. It's not Republicans or Democrats. Frankly, both sides of the aisle can do a better job on the issue of race. And frankly, my side of the aisle, I think, is doing a fabulous job of making progress. And while these candidates showcase some diversity in the party's leadership, Pomona College's Sarah Sarwani says it's a big question what effect this will have on the party's nominating process. It's just unclear if the Republican voter base is actually going to respond and receive that in a way that would get them to the top spot on the slate. For now, this is highly unlikely for candidates like Senator Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, or Vivek Ramaswamy. White men in the field continue to pull ahead of everyone else. But Sadwani says most of these candidates of color could be a smart pick for vice president. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. On to that volcano now. A volcano in the Philippines is quietly erupting. Over the weekend, Mount Mayon began oozing lava. Ashley Westerman reports from the Philippines. Just outside of Mount Mayon's so-called danger zone, anywhere within four miles of the volcano, thousands of displaced villagers crowd into tents lined up side by side in a huge evacuation center. It's hot and crowded in these centers, says Alfred Nemo, who sent NPR the video. He's the head of Tayo, a youth-based NGO helping the displaced. The situation in the evacuation centers are really not good. For example, um, there are 10 to 15 families who need to stay in one classroom, so it's really crowded. His group has been providing evacuation transportation and handing out water and sleep kits since last week. That's when the villagers were given the order to head to the shelters, when the alert level for the volcano was raised to three. Alert level three out of five means an eruption is imminent or already happening. Some 15,000 people have already been evacuated so far from around the volcano. Located a little over 200 miles southeast of the capital Manila on a peninsula known as Bicol, the Mayan volcano is known for two things. One, it's nearly perfect cone shape, and two, for being super active. Essentially, we are having a very atypical, very low gas eruption. 
Mariton Bornas is with the Philippine Institute of Volcanology and Seismology. Her team has been tracking Mayon's increased activity since last year, but incidents of rock falls, tremors, and volcanic emissions such as gas and ash have really picked up since the start of June, she says. But she says they aren't quite sure what may happen next. Because this is a new type of eruption, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it looks the same, but from the scientific point of view, it's really different. The last time the Mayon volcano erupted was in 2018, displacing thousands of people. But that's what comes with living so close to a volcano, says Alfred Nemo, who also grew up in Mayon's shadow, and who, like many Filipinos, is no stranger to natural disasters in a country often battered by super typhoons and other calamities. They're already used to the situation. And actually, every time that we're having typhoon, they really need to evacuate. So this is something not new to them. Most cannot afford to move, he says, because they're farmers who make their livelihoods there. A life, he says, which is actually pretty comfortable when there isn't an eruption. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Laguna, Philippines. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the debate over the fees that social media platform Reddit imposed on third-party app developers. It's 19 minutes past 8. WBUR supporters include Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu slash success. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at mos.org. Two of California's largest home insurers have said they won't sell new policies there. And some homeowners who had already lost their insurance are struggling to find a replacement. They basically told us that we were dropped because of the risk of wildfires. And when we went to go reinsure, no other insurers are apparently insuring this zip code anymore. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In our weather forecast, partly sunny skies today, maybe a few showers this afternoon, temperatures in the 70s, thunderstorms tonight with lows around 60 degrees, partly sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the 70s and a mix of sun and clouds on Friday, maybe a few scattered showers and temperatures in the 70s, 62 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at HintWater.com. From Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices, and passwords are shareable. 
More at KeeperSecurity.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Faldid. Artificial intelligence has led to huge leaps in surveillance technology in recent years. Many experts are worried that it's gotten so good, it threatens to upend the balance of power between citizens and their government. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on why some experts think the law needs to catch up with the tech. If you're curious whether artificial intelligence could be used to build a dystopian surveillance state where the government can track your every move... The answer is yes, and we know this because one government has already done it, China. The state has invested around $100 billion to build these systems in Xinjiang. Darren Byler is an anthropologist at Simon Fraser University who's worked for over a decade in the Chinese province of Xinjiang. It's home to millions of people who are part of the Uyghur ethnic group. Beijing considers Uyghurs a threat, and they've installed a massive surveillance network to track them. Byler's seen it in action. There are automated sort of passive camera systems that are just watching all the time and watching movement, and you don't even realize that you're being watched. The exact details of how the system works aren't known, but Byler says based on academic papers and Chinese law enforcement journals and interviews he's done, it's clear that AI plays a big role. It's used to watch things like cell phones and license plates and recognize patterns in people's behaviors. They can really track the registered population of the region, just 25 million people, everywhere that they are. And so, you know, you can plug in their name into the system and see where they are at any point in time. And then you can roll it back and see where they were the day before and the day before that. And one of the most important AI tools underpinning this giant surveillance apparatus is facial recognition. Now, you might not even think of facial recognition as AI, but it is. Modern facial recognition tools, like what opens your phone, are actually powered by machine learning algorithms that were developed just a few years before things like chat GPT. For the past decade, companies have been building ever more powerful facial recognition software. In China, it's being used by the state security apparatus, but in the West, it's increasingly being used by law enforcement. It's not every case, but I think it's becoming more and more routine. You you, you know, the amount of images that we have access to now, policing has changed. Joseph Cortesis is a retired New York City police inspector who ran the city's real-time crime center. Cortesis says that New York police are not using facial recognition at all like they do in China. There are lots of departmental rules. They only use it to generate leads, not as evidence in court. Policy says they're only supposed to use footage related to crimes. And they compare faces mostly to images in a mugshot database. These are uh, images of individuals who have had been arrested uh, for photographable offenses and their images were lawfully obtained. Cortesis now consults for one of the nation's largest facial recognition companies. It's called Idemia. Their algorithms are among the best out there. These algorithms are performing over 99% accurate. That's according to an evaluation by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. It showed that Idemia's face recognition technology is 99.88% accurate, though there are many real-world factors like camera resolution and lighting, which means it won't work that well in every scenario. Still, he argues, the software has huge advantages over the old system, which often involved humans perusing giant books of mugshots and trying to pick out the perp based on memory. We had archaic ways of doing it, often led to dead ends. 
was probably not very accurate at all and and may i'm not going to say has but may have contributed to um to uh, wrong identifications but as china's surveillance system shows facial recognition can be a lot more than just an upgrade to using mugshots and lineups nate freed wesslers with the american civil liberties union he says especially as ai continues to improve this technology is giving the police the ability to surveil citizens at a scale they've never had before i'm concerned i'm deeply concerned about the potential of this technology to really upset the kind of balance of power between us, the people, and the government that we've long expected. The ACLU opposes all uses of facial recognition by law enforcement, but it's particularly worried about live facial recognition. AI facial recognition is now so strong, it can enable mass real-time tracking. Several U.S. police departments have experimented with live technology, though it appears not on a wide scale, but elsewhere it is starting to get used. This spring in London, England, police deployed a live facial recognition system in some public spaces. So far, it has led to two arrests, according to department statistics. They were made by scanning more than 80,000 faces. The system didn't identify the faces of most of the people it saw, but in theory, it could. Police have never had that capability across the entire U.S. population, and that's the specter that, that we're worried about. Only a handful of states and municipalities have laws preventing live tracking or putting any limits on facial recognition, says Claire Garvey with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. She says more cities and states need to seriously consider how to regulate facial recognitions used by police. Where are we drawing the lines? Where do we build inefficiencies back into a technology that has created massive efficiency in law enforcement? Should police be able to surveil a protest to learn more about who shows up? Should they be able to stake out a house with a camera and identify everyone who enters and leaves? These are real scenarios, and Garvey argues that the technology could challenge fundamental constitutional rights to privacy, assembly, and association. We are always putting the technological cart before the legal horse, so to speak. And the consequence is on real people. Garvey doesn't think the U.S. is headed towards a dystopian surveillance state anytime soon, but she says the best way to keep it that way is to pass strong laws that regulate AI for surveillance. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top local stories are coming up in just a moment. In about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a story about San Francisco's recent appointment of the country's first drag laureate. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com and The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family 
and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Former President Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to a 37-count federal indictment over his handling of classified documents after leaving the White House. Trump appeared in a Miami courtroom yesterday for his arraignment. He did not speak during the proceeding. Many Republicans, including some of Trump's GOP rivals for the party's presidential nomination, continue to voice support for Trump. One who is not, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, says he's offended by those promising to pardon Trump if he's convicted. It is wrong. Uh, It is unjustified. It is a bad precedent. Uh, They're politically pandering uh, to get votes. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has said he would pardon Trump. Pennsylvania's transportation secretary says demolition crews are working around the clock to remove debris caused by the collapse of an elevated section of Interstate 95 in Philadelphia. It's expected to take weeks to replace the northbound section of interstate that gave way after a tanker truck crash and fire. A section of southbound I-95 was deemed unsafe and remains closed. Joseph Fitzpatrick is a truck driver. Every week this goes on, And every month, this is going to cost me over $1,500 a month extra, just on tolls. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. State lawmakers are considering a pair of bills that would decriminalize the use of psychedelics, including so-called magic mushrooms. Several people testified at yesterday's statehouse hearing that focused on the safety of psychedelics. Supporters say they can be used to treat a variety of mental and physical ailments, including migraines and PTSD. James Davis is co-founder of the group Bay Staters for Natural Medicine. I've sat with a Worcester official who woke up the next day after a psilocybin experience to find relief for the first time in 35 years from her chronic depression. Some communities, including Cambridge, Salem, and Northampton, have already passed ordinances decriminalizing psychedelics such as psilocybin. Tea officials say the company responsible for building new red and orange line cars is submitting unfinished cars for inspection. CRRC has a contract to build more than 400 new cars. The MBTA tells the Boston Herald the cars are being delivered with bare metal and loose connections. CRRC has not commented on the condition of the cars. Juneteenth celebrations begin in Boston this morning with an inaugural concert at the Embrace Sculpture on the Common. The concert is the first event of the three-day Embrace Ideas Festival. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the Pulitzer Prize-winning creator of the 1619 Project, will be in Boston for the festival. She'll speak during an event tomorrow at the Massachusetts College of Art. Firefighters from across New England gather today to discuss the Great Boston Fire of 1872. That fire killed at least 30 people. It destroyed more than 750 buildings and caused what today would be $1.5 billion in damage. Boston Fire Commissioner Paul Burke says departments today are more prepared, in part because of the scale of that fire. Structures were all wooden at the time, so things 
on that level of change. The buildings are now made of steel. They have fireproofing on a lot of the, the walls, the fireproof, the flooring is fireproof. So there's been a lot of changes to the fire service since then. And my hope is something like that could never happen again. The fire began in what's now the financial district and spread across more than 65 acres. The time is 834. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. In sports, Red Sox lost to the Colorado Rockies 7-6 to in 10 innings at Fenway last night. The Sox and Rockies will wrap up their three-game series tonight. And the Vegas Golden Knights won their first Stanley Cup last night. And the hockey team has some local connections. The team's head coach is Bruce Cassidy, who was fired by the Bruins last year. Also playing for the team is Jack Eichel. He's from North Chelmsford, and he played for Boston University. In our forecast, partly sunny skies today, maybe a shower or two later this afternoon, highs in the 70s today. Tonight, showers, thunderstorms, lows near 60 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs in the 70s, and a mix of sun and clouds on Friday, maybe a few scattered showers Friday afternoon, and temperatures in the 70s. It's 63 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Right now, thousands of pages known as subreddits on the social media platform Reddit are dark because today's the last day of a blackout protest against plans by the company to make developers whose apps make Reddit easier to navigate pay for access to the company's data starting July 1st. If you're not familiar with Reddit, it's a place where people create chat groups, really communities around common interests, sports, politics, music, reality TV. And Reddit says despite the protests, they're going forward with plans to start charging developers who use their data because they're done giving away something so valuable to other companies for free, they say. Dan Ives is a tech analyst at Wedbush Securities, and he's here to discuss. Good morning. Great to be here. So if you could just explain first what Reddit is actually charging for. This isn't going to impact regular users, right? It's really the developers in terms of the APIs, but, but when you really look at the ripple effect, something that was free is now going to be something charged for. And it's something we're seeing across social media. Clock has really struck midnight when it comes to free content. That's what we're seeing happen from Reddit to Twitter to Facebook and others. So why are they starting to charge now? It, it all comes down to the dollar. I mean, you know, advertising you know, continues to really be something that has been a headwind for a lot of these companies. And when you look at Reddit, you build it, they come. The more developers, the more consumers that are on Reddit, now they can monetize. And that ultimately what this is all about. We're seeing this trend across social media. It's not just Reddit. Really started with Twitter, Zuckerberg and Facebook obviously following. And I think this is a trend that's not slowing down. 
So you see this as a path for regular users to get charged because Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're charging for verification, but those are all still free. Reddit is still free for users. So is it only a matter of time until the regular people online are going to be paying for this? Well, I think for Reddit, it would be more freemium. Of course, there's going to be a free service, but ultimately it's all about premium content, premium. That's where this is all eventually heading. If users find it valuable, they'll pay. Hmm. But that is a very tough climb to charge for something, just like we're seeing today for APIs that were free. And for the layman, if you could explain an API. And what that's really about is developers now need to pay in terms of access to Reddit and really developing on top of the platform. That's really the issue. Now, developers are protesting because they say that the amount they're going to be charged will break their companies, put them out of business. Christian Selig developed one of the most popular third-party Reddit apps called Apollo. Here's what he told NPR. For virtually all apps, the pricing is so high that things would either have to drastically change or things would have to shut down. Now, you said, you know, people will pay if they if they want this access. Will they pay if it's going to break their business? It's a risky proposal, really, what Reddit's doing. It's a calculated risk for developers. I mean, this is a this is a gut punch. It's something that they were not expecting. And, you know, I believe this is all a game of poker between developers and Reddit. And, you know, I, I still think the the chapter is going to be written in terms of how successful this is going to be. So how do you see this playing out um, in the days ahead? It sounds like Reddit plans to go forward. I think they're going to go forward, but I do believe that there could be some negotiation that ultimately happens here because developers are the lifeblood when you look at Reddit, when you look at all these platforms. And that's why I think this is something where the last thing you want to do is really you know, suffocate what's been the, the core hearts and lungs of your base, the reason it's known around the world. So it sounds like this could actually backfire. It definitely could backfire. I mean, this is essentially a Game of Thrones going on between developers and Reddit. And it's not just Reddit. I mean, we're, we're seeing backlash on Twitter, on eventually on Facebook, and on some of these other premium platforms where these platforms are trying to get more and more monetization. But well, it's easier said than done, as we're seeing, especially if things that are free now getting paid for. Yeah, I mean, people don't like to pay for things that they used to have for free, do they? I mean, it comes down to you've been at the restaurant, bread's for free. Now you're going to pay $4. You're not going to be happy. And that's what developers are now going through with Reddit. But this is an old Western standoff that's going on. I think still more to be written. Dan Ives is a managing director and senior equity research analyst covering the tech sector at Wedbush Securities. Thank you. Thank you. The battle over what books should be in public schools and libraries may be over, at least in the state of Illinois, because the state is the first to ban banning books. From our member station WBEZ in Chicago, Alex Degman reports. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the state's new law in Chicago's Harold Washington Library before a display of targeted books and said only regimes like Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and the Taliban demand banning books. We refuse to let a vitriolic strain of white nationalism coursing through our country determine whose histories are told. Not in Illinois. 
Pritzker said there were nearly 70 attempts to take books off library shelves last year. Proponents of book bans say they're protecting children from ideas they don't consider age-appropriate or are otherwise objectionable. Illinois Secretary of State Alexei Janulius was the force behind the state's new law. The simple act of reading a book is a restricted right. Janulius oversees school and public library grants and calls librarians heroes. He says many of the attempted bans involve authors who are either LGBTQ or queer or people of color. And he says many librarians are leaving the profession because of harassment. It's honestly hard and deeply disheartening to figure out how we got to this point. Under the Illinois law, libraries have to adopt the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights, or similar language. It says, among other things, that materials should not be proscribed or removed because of partisan or doctrinal disapproval. If the public or school library chooses not to follow these guidelines, they'll lose access to grant funding. No Illinois Republican supported the bill. During the legislative debate, State Senator Jason Plummer said residents elect local library boards and pay local taxes, and they, not the ALA, should have the final say. None of your constituents voted for this random organization, and you're taking their powers away from them simply because you may not agree with their beliefs. According to the American Library Association, there were efforts to ban more than 2,500 books nationwide last year, a nearly 40% increase over 2021. At the bill signing, ALA Executive Director Tracy Hall talked about freedoms that Americans have and said everyone should be proud of the state's new library law. History will surely note that we, librarians and legislators, civic leaders and community stewards, did not stand idly by and let the right to read and to freely access libraries be taken from us. The state's new law that aims to prevent any further book bans takes effect January 1st. For NPR News, I'm Alex Degman in Springfield, Illinois. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on the Marketplace Morning Report, the latest Consumer Price Index report, which is a key measure of inflation. In our weather forecast, partly sunny skies today. A few areas could see a shower to this afternoon. Highs will be in the 70s. Tonight, thunderstorms. Lows near 60 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs in the 70s. And for Friday, partly sunny again. Maybe a few scattered showers and temperatures in the 70s. It is 63 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. In business news, Boston-based Biogen is facing some new questions about its director. The company's board chose Susan Langer to replace longtime director Alex Denner when he steps down from the executive board. But Stat News is reporting that Biogen did not disclose that Langer is Denner's romantic partner and the mother of one of his children. Biogen officials say they were aware of the relationship. Langer still needs approval from shareholders before taking over the role. 
AstraZeneca is partnering with Waltham-based Vanguard to power all 12 of its U.S. sites with renewable natural gas. The Delaware-based pharmaceutical giant says the system will harness gas released by food waste and cow manure. It expects to complete the transition by the end of 2026. Medford-based Greenlight Biosciences plans to lay off 96 workers next month. That's about a third of its workforce. The layoff notice was filed with the state the same week that Greenlight announced it planned to go private as part of a merger deal. The time is 846. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. You can experience the all-electric BMW iX with BMW performance, luxury, and technology, featuring a go-anywhere range of up to 307 miles. Test drives are available at your local BMW center. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldig. And I'm Steve Inskeep. When you win a Nobel Prize, you become a Nobel laureate. The country also has a poet laureate. Many states have poet laureates. And now there is a drag laureate. NPR's Chloe Veltman recently joined the country's first drag laureate on her inaugural public appearance, unfurling a pride flag outside San Francisco City Hall. Getting Darcy Drollinger ready for her first official appearance as San Francisco Drag Laureate is a production. I do need to get my nails on, so... The artist's nightclub owner and newly appointed government official stands in the living room of her San Francisco apartment as two helpers grapple with a set of bejeweled, custom-made artificial nails. What was that one? That's That's a middle finger. That's a thumb, honey. Wait, that's a thumb? Wedged into a pair of white patent stilettos and a tight pink skirt suit, Drollinger eventually steps out of the house and into a very busy week. I am speaking at the San Francisco Arts Commission. I'm also in the same day speaking at the Entertainment Commission. Um, I'm also going to speak at a high school. I'll be in the parade with the mayor. San Francisco Mayor London Breed says the city's LGBTQ task force proposed the creation of the drag laureate position around three years ago, during the darkest days of the COVID-19 pandemic. The creativity, the joy that a drag laureate brings because we've been through a really hard time. In fact, Breed says one of Darcy Drollinger's selling points as a candidate for the job was her track record as a spreader of sparkle. The nightclub owner pivoted during lockdown to create a food delivery service. Meals on heels. Performers in drag from Drollinger's nightclub delivered meals and cocktails to San Francisco residents with a side order of lip syncing. Come on, you're just joining me, right? Come on. But Mayor Breed says the recent attacks against drag performers, as well as a rise in anti-drag legislation in different parts of the country, now make the appointment of a drag laureate particularly crucial. In some of those communities where something like this wouldn't be considered acceptable behaviour, there's a kid that's thinking, oh my goodness, she's like me. I can be myself without fear. It's scary right now. The backlash is real. That's Kylo Freeman. They're the force behind Drag is Divine. The ad campaign aims to raise awareness and funding to help fight anti-drag laws. Freeman says they're excited to see local governments highlight drag culture in such a visible way. In West Hollywood, officials plan to appoint a drag laureate later this month. I think it's a real step forward to have these roles in place, giving us folks that can speak on behalf of the community at a large scale. Pull it, pull it, pull it. There we go. Yeah, yeah. 
At San Francisco City Hall, Darcy Drollinger assists the mayor in the traditional unfurling of the pride flag and makes her first official speech. Drag is activism. Drag is joy. Drag is instrumental to bringing people together. Drag is fabulous. Afterwards, Drollinger cheerfully admits she's not quite prepared to meet the demands of her new job. For instance, being on one's feet at long-winded civic functions isn't super compatible with the wearing of three-inch stilettos. But the nation's first ever drag laureate says she's willing to improvise. Sometimes you have to lip sync to whatever song gets turned on. Because that's what trailblazers do. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on a United Nations report that the number of refugees around the world is at an all-time high. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic, This compelling compilation of works explores black identity, community, and power. Opens June 17th. More at PEM.org. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Trump is back on the campaign trail after pleading not guilty to mishandling classified documents. The Federal Reserve not expected to raise interest rates today after inflation numbers slowed last month. And European lawmakers are urging the U.S. and other Western countries to fast-track Ukraine's membership into NATO. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Imagine if a school bus ran like a Tesla. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, in just over five hours, we'll hear from the guardians of interest rates about their inflation fight. The winking and the nodding from our central bankers is that they'll leave interest rates alone this time to let their previous hikes sink in. We will see. Markets Dow futures are down two-tenths of a percent, but S&P and NASDAQ futures are each up two-tenths percent. The 10-year interest rate is down slightly, 3.8 percent. 
Yesterday, there was music to the ears of the Fed team, with the consumer price index rising at an annual rate of 4% in May, the lowest retail inflation in two years. Yet the cost of rent was up 8.7% in a year. That's a lot, but there are other data from real estate firms such as Redfin and Zillow showing rental prices cooling. Marketplace's Henry Epp has that. When the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures the cost of rent, they include how much Americans are paying under leases signed months ago. But private firms like to measure the cost to sign a new lease now. And that second measure is looking more positive for renters, says Igor Popov, chief economist at Apartment List. Market rent growth has really peaked already a year ago and has actually been cooling dramatically over the past year. To be clear, rents are still going up, he says, just no longer at a breakneck pace. One reason for that? A lot of long-awaited new apartments are finishing construction, says Taylor Marr at the real estate company Redfin. Now the new supply is here, and it's continuing to come. There's nearly a million rental units right now that are under construction. But those new units aren't affordable to everyone. Most of them are geared toward middle-to-upper-income households, says Jay Parsons at RealPage. The consequence to that is that there's still a significant housing shortage for low and moderate income households. It'll take more government action and subsidies, Parsons says, to fully meet demand. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. And some deflation in used car prices. Cox Automotive finds used vehicle prices fell 2.7 percent April to May. That's largely higher interest rates at work. Using Nielsen data analyzed by a beverage industry consulting firm, Bud Light is no longer the number one beer in America. It is now Modelo Especial, according to the Wall Street Journal. This after some consumers took issue with a transgender person doing a Bud Light promotion. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Anheuser-Busch's Bud Light made up more than 7% of all U.S. beer sales last month, according to consulting firm Bump Williams. Its competition from Modelo made up nearly 8.5%. In fact, Bud Light lost market share, while other rivals, Coors Light and Miller Light, also picked up customers in the lucrative U.S. beer market worth some $120 billion. Anheuser-Busch's troubles come at a time of rising anti-LGBTQ sentiment across the country. In April, the company sent a personalized can of Bud Light to transgender Instagram influencer Dylan Mulvaney. The backlash spread online came from conservatives. Anheuser-Busch angered even more people for how it handled that backlash, putting two of its marketing executives on leave. Since April, the company's stock price is down nearly 20%. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at grammarly.com business. When you think of a yellow school bus, what aroma comes to mind? Not that one. I mean, diesel fumes. But that is changing with school buses going electric. As WABE's Molly Samuel reports, a nearly century-old Georgia company is on the vanguard of that shift. Picture kids heading off to school. An early morning group toting backpacks and sports gear and lunchboxes waits as the big yellow school bus pulls up. 
Increasingly, though, the school bus actually sounds like this. School districts around the country are replacing their loud, old, more polluting buses with electric ones. And some of those buses are built by Bluebird in Fort Valley, Georgia. These are the batteries right here. Antonio Bryant teaches people to build the EV buses. Pretty much everybody that comes through here, I have a little hand in training them. Electric buses are a growing focus for the company. Bluebird's senior vice president of electrification, Britton Smith, says about 6% of the company's volume is electric now, but he expects that to grow significantly. The momentum has changed. That's thanks to public funding aimed at tackling climate change and air pollution. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is distributing $5 billion to school districts to buy low- and zero-emission buses. The money comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed a couple years ago. Smith says Bluebird will sell about a billion dollars worth of electric school buses because of it. What's interesting about it is that we're seeing orders from states that you would not expect. Like Kentucky, Utah, and Nevada. Currently, Bluebird has capacity to manufacture four electric buses a day. But the company is building out a facility to be able to build as many as 20 a day by the end of the year. For us, it's, it's a pretty exciting time in our history. There's also potentially changes coming for the workers. They recently voted to unionize, asking for better pay, work-life balance, and safer conditions. The union says with the company benefiting from federal incentives, it's only fair that the workers do, too. And it's notable that Bluebird is profitable with electric buses, says Mike Schliske, a senior research analyst at DA Davidson. There's a lot of flash and a lot of new companies don't turn before and a lot of capital being raised. But the company that's actually doing it just as good as all of that, if not better, is Bluebird. And Bluebird trainer Antonio Bryant says he can see his handiwork on the roads. His dad works in a rural Georgia school system and recently told him his district is getting an electric bus from his factory. I do this so my hometown get one that I actually built. His dad may be getting to drive one of his buses. He says that's kind of cool. In Fort Valley, Georgia, I'm Molly Samuel for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at UMassMed.edu. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.